The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 15th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there's a horrific terror attack in France. There's a possible coup in Turkey. Shouldn't it be a gobble, not a coup? I joke because I'm quite nervous. Never has there been a democratically elected president who is more in need of a check-in than President Erdogan. And the Turkish military is a fine history, backbone of the country. It is a Western-oriented democracy because of the military, not despite it. And yet, and yet, can't really back a military coup, can you? What am I, the U.S. government? So we find ourselves again retreating from all the troubles of the world into what should be the most troubling ongoing disaster in the world, the Trump presidency. But first, your reminder that Hillary Clinton is not the hepcat arbiter of suave sophistication, some would have you believe. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. I hope they don't let Donald Trump candy crush the dreams of working America. Am I right? And when I saw all those cheering crowds at his rallies, I thought this was a good example of plants versus zombies. Crowd goes wild. Oof. Uh. But the big Trump news is that Mike Pence is indeed the pick. Don Trump and Mike Pence quickly to the anagram machine. This dance appealing to rural whites, emphasizing Trump's garishness. It's a kind of redneck minuet pomp. Doesn't anyone even care about the guy on top of the ticket's comportment? Do they even note that he's a demonic temper punk with hair that can be defined as preeminent duck mop? Oh, this confluence of a red state Hoosier and the, the orange one, it's corned meets pumpkin. These two guys, you know, their bellicosity almost ensures it. Prompt endemic nuke. I don't know if you like that. It made me feel better. On the show today, I spiel about Newt Gingrich's foolproof plan to essentially prove he's a fool. But first, let's harken back to days gone by. In song, the year was 1981. The activity is counting down the number one hits, and the guest is Chris Malamphy. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Just he's got himself a girl, and I want to make her mine. And she's watching with those eyes. And she's loving with that body. I just know it. 1981 was a big year. The hostages were returned. Ronald Reagan took office, and in August of that year... Music television debuted. MTV would forever change music. And you begin to see it. You even begin to see a little bit of it, or at least the blending of image and the sonic parts of songs in the number one hits of 1981. Well, joining me now is Chris Malamphy. He writes the Why Is That Song number one column for Slate. We take a year. We parse the number one singles of a year. 1981 is our year. Wow, were we in elementary school? I was. Yeah, we were too, right? Uh, we were in sixth grade, I think, yeah. or fifth grade. Fifth, maybe? yeah, fifth. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. That sounds right. I remember. I remember watching the inauguration on the day that the hostages were returned. Yes, saying, "Good job, Reagan. You've done it." So the first number one song of 1981 was uh, John Lennon's Just Like Starting Over. And we have discussed this at length when we did 1980. That's but right. after John Lennon 
You have Blondie. Now, Blondie took the tide as high. She had a couple number ones. Uh, I did a whole interview on the Parallel Lines album. Mm-hmm. But the tide is high. Debbie Harry, uh, the beautiful lead singer of Blondie, I think – even though this song came before MTV, the entire gestalt of MTV, let's look at the image, let's take into account how good-looking the uh, recording artists are. We begin to see it here with Blondie, uh, The Tide is High, and also Rapture. Yes, I mean, these are the last two of Blondie's four number one hits. From 1979 to 1981, Blondie were pretty much the biggest American group on the Hot 100, at least. And what's fascinating to me about Blondie, what I've always loved about Blondie, is they have four number one hits. I love them all, and they're all quite different from each other. And now here in 1981, they have two number one hits, different from each other and different from the number one hits they'd had before. The first is The Tide is High. It's actually a cover of, I'd call it a reggae song, but what it really is is a a, a subgenre of reggae called Rocksteady, originally recorded in the 60s by a group called the Paragons. And their cover is really quite faithful to the Paragons original. Uh, and it's slower uh, than reggae. Slower than reggae. Rocksteady, it's right there in the description of the genre. It, it, is, it is an easy, rocking island music. And the tide is high is absolutely in that uh, Rocksteady pocket. Celebration is the next number one song, which brings to mind the question, how did people know to celebrate before February 7th and 14th of 1981? I mean, you're at a sweet 16, you're having a celebration, don't you need a song that says celebration? I guess uh, Cool and the Gang were filling a market gap. Uh, cool and the Gang, of course, uh, you can kind of divide their career into two halves. There, there's the the sort of hard funk half in the 70s when they scored hits like Jungle Boogie, which was you know made famous again in the 90s by the movie Pulp Fiction, uh, Hollywood Swinging. You know, they they were a core R&B act that scored very few pop crossover records or, or you know the occasional uh, top 10 hit. But then with Celebration, uh, they were really going for the brass ring. They brought in uh, a different vocalist named uh, James J.T. Taylor. They called him J.T. to distinguish him from the other James Taylor. Uh, Whose nickname was, of course. J.T., exactly. Uh, James J.T. Taylor had a very smooth voice. He kind of brought the pop, brought the fun. And Celebration is, yeah, my God, we're going to be dancing to this damn thing until, uh, you know, uh, at weddings for decades to come. And Celebration goes to number one. You mentioned it in your lead mike not incidentally not long after reagan is inaugurated and uh more significantly when the iranian hostages are brought back after you know more than a year and a half in captivity so we start feeling good about ourselves and to keep it up we have the country interregnum because for the next few weeks dolly parton's nine to five and eddie rabbit's i love a rainy night are the number one songs. Now, if you're too young to remember this, you're like, really? A country song? You just didn't even question it back then. I think top 40 radio stations would play a decent country song like Rhinestone Cowboy or I Love a Rainy Night without even batting an eye, unlike they do now. What is 
important to keep in mind about 1981 is that it is a few months after the cultural phenomenon that was the John Travolta movie Urban Cowboy. That's a 1980 movie. Urban Cowboy has an enormous impact on radio, on American popular culture. It made the uh, bull riding rodeo bar a mainstay, even in urban centers uh, a- around the country. Basically, uh, as the disco fad passed, you know, John Travolta helped usher yeah. in the disco fad with yeah. uh, Saturday Night Fever. And as uh, Americans needed a new way to go out at night and, uh, you know, get their rocks off, uh, they were wearing cowboy boots, yeah. they were wearing size too small Wranglers, and they were getting on mechanical bulls. I also blame him for the aerobics fad with his movie perfect yes although by the time perfect came out i think he had really missed the aerobics fad i don't think we can blame him for three fads i think we can only really uh give him credit for a couple in all seriousness there was a period of about a year or two where uh top 40 radio partially because it was moving so hard right away from disco disco had imploded in 1980 and they were uh reaching into the warm embrace of country records uh of course it didn't hurt in the case of dolly parton's nine to five that it was also the theme song of an enormous hit movie a movie starring Ms. parton herself as well as lily tomlin jane fonda and uh, dabney coleman as uh the evil boss and so you know you had the soundtrack helping it there. You had the, you know, sparkling personality of Dolly helping it there during this peak post urban cowboy country crossover moment. On the same boat with a lot of your friends, waiting for the day your ship will come in and the tide's gonna turn and it's all gonna roll your way. Working nine to five. If we're going to talk about 9 to 5, let's talk about the other 9 to 5. This is weird, isn't it? Another song that where the title was 9 to 5, Sheena Easton. Now it starts off, my baby takes the morning train. He works from 9 to 5 and then he takes another home again. So I guess they, so as to not confuse people, drop the name 9 to 5 that it charted in Scotland, was it? Or the UK? It, it, and it, yeah, called it, it morning train here in the United States. Exactly. It had charted around the world simply as 9 to 5 and simply to eliminate confusion because of that coincidence. Here in America, it was known as morning train, parentheses, 9 to 5. And when you hear that, you do not say to yourself, even if you knew that Prince existed then, oh, wow, she would be the perfect person to pair with Prince. No. There's nothing in that song that seems the least bit funky. No, it, she was really presented as quite young and squeaky clean yeah. uh, when Sheena Easton broke with uh, with Morning Train. He takes me to a movie, to a restaurant to go, slow dancing, anything I want, only when he's with me, I catch a light, only when he gives me, makes me feel alright. My baby takes the morning train, Hole in Oats had a couple of number one songs, Your Kiss is on my list, and of course, perhaps the greatest pop song that includes clapping, Private Eyes. Yeah. 81 was a great year for Hall & Oates. Here's the thing about Hall & Oates. Hall & Oates are fascinating to me because it's like they've had multiple careers. Hall & Oates actually had a number one hit in the 70s. Uh, That number one hit would be Rich Girl, which was number one back in 1977. Now, we've debated a little Hall & Oates and should they be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're a little... I respect them, but to me, Rich Girl is a perfect pop song. That's a terrific song. I I know that I am the bigger Hall & Oates fan here, but uh, no, I... And I, you know, and we could talk about other 70s Hall & Oates songs like She's 
he's gone. Uh, a song so steeped in R&B that, you know, black groups covered it and it actually yeah. charted on, at black radio. Hall & Oates have this weird career that you can literally, there's like a moat in the middle of their career. After Rich Girl goes to number one, they were in the wilderness for about three or four years. They kept recording albums. They kept trying to figure out what they wanted to be. And, and Hall and & Oates are kind of like a case study in the problem of pop and rock crossover and frankly, you know, racial identity. They mm-hmm. are blue, a blue-eyed soul act, although Daryl Hall in every interview he ever gives says he loathes that term. But let's use it for argument's sake. Oates doesn't have to since his eyes are actually brown. Exactly. Uh, But uh, Daryl Hall, the ultimate blue eyed soul singer, you know, possesses an amazing supple voice. But, you know, they sometimes present as rock. They sometimes present as soul. So they spent the late 70s during the peak of disco. They even recorded disco songs like Portable Radio, not knowing what they wanted to be. It wasn't until the Voices album, which came out in 1980, that they kind of amalgamated everything they had been doing, the soul influences, the rock influences, the pop influences into this this whole that was very unique to them. In uh, the the spring of 1981, when Kiss on My List goes to number one, like that was something that nobody saw coming, clearly not even the label, given how late they waited to release it as a single. Uh, and suddenly Hall & Oates were basically like the biggest act on the charts. Uh, they had a top five hit that summer called You Make My Dreams. Uh, if you've seen the movie 500 Days of Summer, this is the song uh, a few years ago that uh, uh, they do an entire dance sequence to. Uh, you Make a My Dreams Come True. That's the woo, one. Woo, woo, woo. It, that was yeah. a top five hit. And then they roll immediately into their next album, Striking While the Iron is Hot. They released the Private Eyes album in the fall of 81 and they lead it off right away with a number one hit with private eyes Paul the notes basically right at the dawn of MTV and and I I don't want to overstate this because their early videos are pretty cheesy looking, but they had come up with a sound that was perfect for that MTV moment when the visual and the sound all had to work together. Yes. And MTV, we're skipping ahead to the last number one song of the year, Physical. Without MTV and that video with Olivia Newton-John, I do not know that that song would have had, it's a fine pop song, I do not know if that song would have had at least the staying power that it had. Olivia Newton-John was catching a wave. Uh, 81 was the year that Time Magazine put, you know, aerobics and America's fitness craze on the cover. It was the year of Jane Fonda's workout mm-hmm. album, Jane Fonda's workout book. Uh, you Our know, buttons w- were not yet of steel, but they were at least of cast iron. It, I would yeah. say so. talk for a second about Betty Davis' eyes. Love this song. We should. What it's, happened to Kim Carnes? Uh, well, let, let's talk about the who fact... Who is Kim Carnes? Who is Kim Carnes? Kim Carnes is a, a journey woman singer, songwriter, rocker, chick, knows everybody in the business, has been around the block, but man, Betty Davis' eyes. First of all, Betty Davis' eyes is the number one song of 1981. It spends nine weeks at number one, except for Olivia Newton-John's Physical, which spent some of its weeks at number one in 1982. No other song spent longer at number one. It it was like the big summer song of that year. I remember being at the beach in the summer of 81, and Betty Davis' eyes was everywhere. And it sounded like a hot weather record. I mean, it shimmers. Easy, all the better just to please you. 
Those are some good rhymes. Those are good pop lyrics. I'm sorry. Exactly. I mean, you can call the song cheesy if you want, but it's a sturdily written song. There's a reason why it was a hit. Here's the crazy part. It was not written as a new wave synthesizer song at all. The original song was written by Jackie DeShannon. Jackie DeShannon, who's been around since the 60s. She had top 10 hits with songs like What the World Needs Now is Love wow. and another songwriter called Donna Weiss. They co-wrote it for Jackie DeShannon's album in 74, 75. It sounds like a country record, kind of like a country pop record. It totally sounds like the mid 70s. This is not a record you listen to and think, oh yeah, some like synthesized hand claps and, you know, shimmery icy synths would make this sound right. And then Kim Carnes latches onto it and that's what she does to it and it becomes the biggest hit of 1981. Chris Malamphy is the author of the Why Is This Song number one column in Slate magazine and he joins us and we take a year and we dissect that year. I think you I think you get the gist of it, right? As they say. Thank you so much, Chris. You're very welcome, Mike. And now the spiel. In the wake of the truck-borne terrorism in France, it's hard to, to even know what to say. But I know what not to say. Unless I'm trying to appeal to a Fox audience and possibly throwing one last Hail Mary as a way to bomb your way onto the presidential ticket. In other words, if I were Newt Gingrich. Western civilization is in a war. We should, frankly... Test every person from here who's, who is of a Muslim background, and if they believe in Sharia, they should be deported. What a great plan. It's got to work. I mean, let's take the Orlando shooter. It's a nut job. It's a wife beater, possibly gay, even more possibly crazy. Pledged allegiance to both Hamas and Hezbollah, which is like throwing your lot in with both cobras and mongoose at the same time. A Sharia test for this guy. This guy seemed to know as much about Sharia as he does Norwegian fishery regulation. Yeah, a Sharia test would have stopped him. And how would a Sharia test go? Uh, do you believe in Sharia? Well, if I deny the tenets of my faith, I'm a bad Muslim. So, yes, to some extent, I believe in Sharia. All right, you're out. Next guy. Do you believe in Sharia? Well, I am an ISIS adherent, and it's important not to give away my position and I saw what happened to the last guy. No, don't believe in Sharia. How does a Sharia test work? Is it yes, no? Is it honor code? Or is it a real test like the SATs? Under the Hawala system, Youssef wants to borrow money from Khalid at 1% interest a day to buy pork and beans for eating while the sun is up. If he borrows 100 dinars and does not repay Khalid for the entire month of Ramadan, how much will he owe? It's the perfect question, because if they refuse to answer because of the multiple violations of Sharia law, we know they know Sharia law. They're out. But if they do answer and get it right, they obviously know what Hawala is. They know how long Ramadan is. So they're obviously Sharia believers. They're out. But if they get it wrong, well, they got it wrong. They're out. Basically, it is a foolproof way to root out Sharia-believing Muslims and non-Sharia-believing Muslims, and all Muslims, and probably a Sikh or two, depending on who's administering the test. I don't know. If I were Muslim, why wouldn't I trust Newt Gingrich to give me this test? I mean, Newt Gingrich says, this is what he said on Facebook Live today, If you are a practicing Muslim, and you believe deeply in your faith, but you're also loyal to the United States, and you believe in the Constitution, 
You should have your rights totally, completely protected within the Constitution. You should have nothing to fear. Your children should have nothing to fear. This is not about targeting a particular religion or targeting people who practice in a particular way. This is about looking for certain characteristics that we have learned painfully time after time. Involve killing people, involve attacks on our civilization. So I want to draw a sharp distinction here. Why don't I trust Newt Gingrich's well-thought-out plan or trust him to competently not stumble over any false positives? That would seem to obsess him and keep him up at night if he wrongly kicked a Muslim American citizen out of this country. Gingrich went on to say about a recent terrorist. He'd already said that uh, he really favored ISIS and the Taliban and hoped they won. This test would not have worked with the Orlando shooter. It wouldn't have worked with the San Bernardino shooter because once expressing pro-ISIS sentiment became against the law, guess who will stop expressing pro-ISIS sentiment? Guys in ISIS. Not illegalizing belief in Sharia law. That actually helps us. Sure, go ahead. Praise ISIS. NSA, you getting this? You getting this? I don't have the perfect solution to stopping all attacks in ISIS. We are awash in guns. And even if we weren't, we're certainly awash in trucks. You cannot stop every murderous thought from turning into a murderous deed. You just can't. But what you can do is make Muslims feel part of American society, which America has actually done really well compared to Europe. You could get Muslims to identify as Americans, to feel the opportunity of Americans, to feel like Americans. And guess what? Many of them are. They're not like Americans. They're just Americans. And the way you do that is to get the rest of America acting more like Americans and rejecting the worst ideas that happen to be un-American. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's not sure who invented Farm Bill, but after playing for 10 hours, she got stuck with the Farm Bill. Pause for cheers. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, realizes all relationships come with their disagreements, but you shouldn't worry too much about words with friends. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has played Cut the Rope for so long that he's at his end of the Cut the Rope pause for raucous ovation. The gist, we don't know why Hillary Clinton decided it was appropriate for her emails to be on a private server. It seems like it was a clash of clandestine communication protocols. Inept charges may apply. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.